All right. We're going to pray just briefly over the word. So if you'll do that with me right now. Father, we thank you for your word, God. And Lord, your desire, God, to communicate to us through your word. You are a God of communication. You are a God who desires to reveal yourself, to reveal your heart, to reveal your will, God, to us. So we ask that you would do that by the spirit tonight, God, that you would breathe upon your word tonight in this place, Father. We want to know you. We set our hearts, we set our minds to know you, God. So awaken our hearts by your spirit. Have your way in this place. We give ourselves fully to you, God. Yes, speak to us, Lord. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight I'm going to start with a, a commonly asked question in the church. Actually, it's, it's asked a lot. You may hear it, uh, whether here, other churches, or other places of ministry. Uh, kind of a philosophical question. The question is this. What were humans created for? What were humans created for? Why did God create humans? And different people in the church have given some different answers to that. Um, one of the most common answers to that question that I, that I hear a lot, which is, which is a good answer, is that humans were created to worship God. Would you agree? Humans were created to worship God. That's a good answer. That's true. But it might not be the most accurate answer. It's true. Totally true. But we're going to stretch things beyond that tonight. Other people will say, which is, again, totally true, humans were created to glorify God. Is that true? We agree with that? That's, that's a true statement. Humans were created to glorify God. Totally true. Completely. But what is it that humans were created to do that nothing else in creation was built for? What sets humans apart from the rest of creation? You see, because angels were created to worship God. Is that true? There were worshiping angels in heaven long before humans were around. For thousands or millions or however many years it was, in eternity past, sometime in that time, before humans were created, God was being worshipped and adored by 10,000 times 10,000, even more than that, angels. And all of creation, everything that was created was built to glorify God. All of it. All of it is created for God's glory. So what is it that sets humans apart from the rest of creation? What's special about us? My answer is this. That humans were created to love God. That humans were created to share intimacy with Almighty God. You see, God is, God is a lover. That's God's very nature. It's one of the clearest 
statements in the Bible, three words in 1 John, God is love. He is a lover. And he created humans as beings in his likeness in order that he would love them and in order that he would receive love from them. God is a lover and he created humans to love him and to be an intimate relationship and fellowship with him. And this really is the story of the Bible in so many ways. You see it throughout the Bible. God is a God who is pursuing his people relentlessly, persistently, continuously. He is pursuing his people over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And at the same time, the story of the Bible is also the story of human beings doing whatever they can in their power to push God away. Especially in the Old Testament. Human beings doing whatever they can to keep God at a distance. Our God is a God who pursues throughout the Bible and humans are people throughout, especially the Old Testament, pushing God away. Saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. Over and over again. And maybe the clearest picture of this is when God goes to the prophet Hosea, right? And he tells Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go and marry an unfaithful woman. And I want you to love her. And I want you to have children by her. And so Hosea goes and does that as a prophetic act. He goes and he marries this unfaithful woman. And he loves her. And they have children even. And then after some time passes, this woman leaves him. She leaves him. She turns her back on him. And then she goes and chases after other lovers. She prostitutes herself. She becomes a prostitute, sleeping around with other men. And in that place, God comes to Hosea again. And he says, Hosea, I want you to go after her. I want you to take her back so that she'd be your wife again. And I want you to love her again. And so Hosea does that. This woman who's completely turned his, her back on him and slept around with who knows how many men, he goes and he buys her back. He spends money. He buys her back so that she would be his wife again. And God's saying, this is a picture of what's actually going on at a much, much bigger level. I'm a God who is a lover and you are the object of my love and I'm going to pursue you. The problem with that, as, as we all likely know here, is that humans couldn't be with God. Humans had separated themselves from God because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because they had turned their back on God. They had earned for themselves 
death and eternal damnation, complete eternal separation from God. And because God knows this, and he's so passionately in love with his people, he sets himself to do whatever it takes to make those people his own again. Whatever it takes to make those people his own because he's so passionately in love with his people. And that cost nothing less than the life of his own son, Jesus coming to earth, becoming a man, a created being, living a perfect, sinless life, and then dying in our place for our sin so that we would be free, so that whoever trusts in the name of Jesus would be free and would have the opportunity to be in right relationship with God again. God continually pursued whatever it takes. He's a God of whatever it takes. I'm going to do it. You know that song that we sing sometimes? I won't relent. You won't relent. That's the heart of God. He is a relentless, passionate pursuer in love for his people. And since that time, God has been purifying his church, his people. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ, right? The bride of Christ. And all of history, all of history, all of it, is moving toward one particular event. And it's explained a bit in the book of Revelation. It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. All of history is moving toward that event. The humans that God created to love and be loved by are going to be purified by that time so that they'd be a bride prepared and ready to be married to the Son of Man, to be married to Jesus himself. And so that's what God's doing right now in this season. He is purifying his bride. He is readying the church for that time. So that's kind of a... a a sweeping view of the Bible in regard to God as a lover and our call as people to be lovers of God. And so within this context, I want to go to our, our main text for tonight, in Revelation 2. And please turn with me there. Revelation 2. We're looking at verse 1. And I'll read it out. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found, themselves, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what you have is a series of messages from Jesus to churches in Asia. Seven different churches that are found in seven different cities, the churches in seven different cities. And Jesus is relaying these messages to these churches through the Apostle John, through Revelation. The first one is to this church in Ephesus. For all of these, for all these letters, Jesus has different different things that he, he wants to affirm them in. He has different, uh, different things he wants to commend each of these churches for. And for a few of them, he's got some really harsh things to say. But he says all of them out of love. He says all of this out of love, out of passion and desire, out of a yearning heart for these churches. And this church in Ephesus, as you can see from the first few verses, is doing a lot of things really really well. Right? We're just going to look at a few of them quickly here. In verse 2, this is what Jesus, he's, he knows the church inside and out. There's nothing about this church in Ephesus that he does not know. Sorry. There's nothing about this church that he does not know. In verse 2 he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This church in Ephesus it's a church that works really hard. Right? You would not fault this church for being lazy. They are doing the right things in a lot of ways. Right? They probably have all sorts of programs. They've got likely prayer meetings going on. They've got services. They've got Bible studies. They're doing work. They're doing service for the poor. You know? They're doing all sorts of good things. They're working hard. That's a good thing to be known for, to be a hard worker. This church is doing well with that. He says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. This church in Ephesus is not only a hard working church. This church is a church that actually practices church discipline. Man, you know how many, how few churches out there actually practice church discipline well? This church is set on finding out false teachers and dealing with them. They are not going to compromise in this area, right? They're doing that really well. If you move to the bottom, just skip down to verse 6, it says, Yet I have this, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans, they were a group of people at that time, and they were known for using grace as a license for sin. Okay, They were a liberal group of people in that way. They were the kind of people who would say, Jesus' grace covers me, so I'm just going to do what I want. Right? It's okay, I can compromise, I can sin, because he's going to forgive me. 
it's okay. It's not a big deal. Sin's not a big deal, you know? Because Jesus pays for that, and, and I'll be okay in the end. And so they lived their lives however they wanted to in that way. That's who the Nicolaitans were. And what does Jesus say to the Ephesian church? He says, now you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You hate that. Not only are you taking a stand against using grace as a license for sin, you can't stand it. You hate that. And I value that in you. You're doing that really well. You guys are doing great in these things. Jesus is saying, you're a church that works really hard. You're doing lots of great things, you know? And you can't stand false teachers and you're dealing with them in right ways and false teaching in right ways. And you're not compromising in the area of sin. You're not doing it. Those are good things. Now, if that ended there, man, there's a lot of ways in which I would want to be a part of this church. There's a lot of good stuff going on there. And what does Jesus say to them in verse 4? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus is saying to them, you used to love me with your whole heart. You used to be filled with passion and longing and desire for me. You notice here, it gets really clear that that loving God is not just about doing stuff. It's not just about works. It's not just about obedience. Loving God is bigger than that. Loving God does include emotion. You cannot separate emotion from true love. You can't. Your heart isn't filled with passion and longing for me the way it used to. I'm not the priority in your life that I used to be. Things have changed. And he says, repent. He doesn't say, you know, just just try to do a bit better with love. That word, that word strikes me. Repent. You know what that means? That means that when you're not loving God in this way, it's sin. You know? Turn from this way of not making me your top priority. Turn away from this. Turn away. That's what repent means. Make a U-turn. Turn away from it. Do the things you used to do. Love me. What I want to do right now is is talk a bit about a few different ways the Bible shows people expressing love for God. So the question might be, what does love for God look like? What are some ideas in the Bible? All sorts of depictions and expressions of love for God in the Bible. We're going to look at a few. Uh, Turn quickly to Psalm 63. And we're actually going to look at some, some general statements about love. So what happens 
when you are in love, whether with God or with anyone else. What happens when you're in love? First thing, when you're in love, you want to spend time with the person that you're in love with. Is that true? Is that, is that a true statement? Yeah. If you're in love with someone, we got some people bearing witness. Uh, if, if you're in love with someone, you want to spend time with that person. Psalm 63 says this. This is David, King David, saying, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And he goes on to say, My soul be satisfied as with, the rich, as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You get a sense that David is a guy who is in love with God? You get a sense for that? Oh, it's just, it's groaning out of him how he longs for God to be with God. In the context of this passage, David is in the wilderness. He's in the desert. And scholars generally agree that, that this is... David was in the, the wilderness two times, really. Uh, two extended periods that we know of in his life. First time, he's fleeing from King Saul. Second time, he's fleeing from his own son, Absalom. Scholars generally agree this was written in the context of that second time in the desert. So David is fleeing from his own son. He was king over Israel. His own son turns his back on him, rises up, takes power in Jerusalem, and David has to flee for his life because his own son wants to kill him. All right? And the nation in large part has turned against David. So he flees to the wilderness. All right? David has all sorts of needs at this point. David has a need for physical protection. He's got a need for food. He's got a need for comfort. He's got a need for relationship. You know, he's got a need for all sorts of things. But what does he ask God for? What is he seeking in this place? He just wants God. He's not asking for the kingdom back. He's not asking for physical protection or physical provision. He's not asking for any of that. He's saying, God, I just, I just want you. I just want you. That's it. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I want to be with you. I want you. And Psalm 27, a, a fairly familiar Psalm, David says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I desire, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing, David is a man who just wants to be with God. He just wants to be with him. That's it. And when you're in love with someone, 
That, that's what happens. That's naturally what happens. When I was in college, I had a bit of an experience with this. Now, now my, my relationship experience is not extensive through my life. When I, when I was a freshman in college, my first year of college, I got to know this girl who was, she, she was, yeah, no, 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 she, she was amazing. She was, she was a sophomore for one thing. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. That, that, that's okay. And like very attractive, very cool person. And I decided I needed to get to know this person because I was really attracted to her. And I discovered something about her. She liked to play Scrabble in the administration building at nights. That's, that's what I discovered. This is, this is what I found out about this girl. Okay? That's, I, did, I did research. And I can assure you all, I had absolutely no interest in playing Scrabble. I've never, I, I honestly, I've, I've never really liked the game. I don't know why. I just never have. But I had the opportunity to get to know this girl better, to spend time with her, just to be with her, out of my attraction to her, by playing Scrabble. And so I did that. Night after night, I would go to the administration building of school, I would play Scrabble. And, yeah. And, and the guys in the dorm would be like, so where's John tonight? Oh, he's playing Scrabble. And everyone knew what that meant. And uh, because I was... Anyways, but the point is, I, I wasn't even in love with this girl. I wasn't. I was just really attracted to her, and I, I just wanted to be with her. It just felt really good to be with her and to get to know her, right? And you see that around, right? When people are in love, it doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter where they are. They just want to be together. Is that, is that true? They just, just want to be together, and be together a lot. That is naturally what happens when you are in love with someone. We've got a couple that's going to be married really soon here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And they're spending time together right now. Listen to the word of God. That's really good. Okay. So, when you're in love with God, it doesn't become any sort of an issue spending time with him, right? Like, like spending time in prayer is, is not a big deal. It's what you want to do because you're just being with God. You know, you don't need to be interceding or warring in the spirit. Those are good things. But when you're in love with him, it's okay just to be with him. And when you're in love with God, the lie that spending time with God is a waste of time breaks off of you. You stop believing it. You stop believing it. Because it's never a waste of time to be in his presence. It just never is. And when you're in love with him, you just want to do that. That's how it works. It's amazing. Um, most of you probably know of IHOP, International House of Prayer, a place I have a great deal of, of respect and, and appreciation for. They've been praying nonstop for the past 10 years or so. And when I first found out about that, I asked myself, like, how is that even possible? that they don't stop praying. You know, it's got to 
people have to burn out sometime or just get tired of it. How come it keeps going? What is the secret of that place? And it's not the only place of its kind. There are all sorts of 24-7 prayer movements out there. But what I really believe is, is the most important secret to that movement is that Mike Bickle, the leader of that movement, has made an intentional step to really press into intimacy with God. That is... I think Bickle would say that's their top mandate. Intimacy. Intimacy. Because when you grow in intimacy with God, when you grow in love for God, you, you just want to be in his presence. And you just pray. It's the most natural thing in the world to do when you're in love with God. Okay? So that's the first thing that we're looking at here. Uh, in terms of when you're in love, what that looks like. Second thing, we're going to go through a couple more really quickly. When you're in love, you stop caring what people think about you. Is that true? You start doing things that before you cared about what people thought, and now because you're in love, you you just don't. It doesn't matter anymore. You, You do some kind of crazy things, and things that might even annoy other people but it doesn't matter because you're in love and you're going to do what you want to do because you're in love. Okay, we're not going to turn there, but just to briefly summarize, John 12, pastor about Mary of Bethany. Now, Mary of Bethany is a woman who was in love with Jesus. She, her heart was filled with love for him. In John 12, it's right before Jesus is going to be crucified. It's like a week before Passover, six days before Passover. And they're having a, a meal to honor Jesus in the, in the town of Bethany. Mary's sister Martha is the person who's serving the food. And the men are reclining around the table having a meal. During the meal, as Jesus and Lazarus and, and some other men there, prominent men, whoever they were, they're having a meal. Mary comes in with a jar of extremely expensive perfume. And she breaks the thing open. She pours it on Jesus' feet. She lets down her hair. She starts wiping his feet, anointing his feet with this really expensive oil. This is the kind of oil you would measure out bit by bit normally. You would be very careful with this. She didn't care. She broke the whole thing open, dumped it on his feet. This perfume was worth almost a year's wages for for a worker at that time. It was worth a lot of money. Think about how much a year's wage would be in in a jar of perfume. And likely this was Mary's entire savings. That's likely what it was her entire financial security in a bottle. She breaks it open. She pours it on Jesus' feet and she starts wiping his feet, anointing him. And one of the things, you know, one of the things that strikes you right away is the financial sacrifice she made in doing that because it's a huge financial sacrifice, at least in some ways. But another thing that strikes me about that is that 
she basically what she did was she took her dignity and she threw it out the window. That was it. There was no reason in the world, in the natural, by human standards, that she should have done anything like she did. Nothing. For one, in that context, that party for Jesus, uh, the, the party they were throwing for Jesus, that was a party for men. I'm sorry, women. In that context, they didn't allow women. To, Martha was serving them, and that was it. That was about as close as women got in that kind of meal. Mary was not welcome. She was not supposed to be there. And she comes into the guy's party. She crashes the party. She comes in, the guy's having a great time. And she comes in. She breaks open this super expensive jar of perfume. Totally unheard of. She lets down her hair. A hair is, in that time especially, is a woman's glory. You don't do that sort of thing as a woman. You just don't. And she starts wiping Jesus' feet. with per- like, The whole thing doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand that Mary was passionately in love with Jesus and she didn't give a rip about what anyone thought. She didn't care. She just didn't care because she was in love with him. Let your excuse be for whatever you do. You can let your excuse be, I did it because I love Jesus. That's why I did it. I did it because I love him. And Jesus is so pleased with that. Yeah. When you're in love, you stop caring what people think. Can move quickly to the last point here. When you're in love, you start losing your desire for other lovers. You start losing desire for the other things that would compete for your love. That just makes sense, right? When you're in love. You know, when, when couples are on a honeymoon, that's likely going to be the last time, the, the, the least likely time that they're going to have an affair with someone else. And I'm sure it happens and people make movies about how it happens. But, you know, for real, you know, that, that's, that's going to be the least likely time because you're so in love with that person that you're taken up with it. You're taken up with that person. And all other loves, all other people or things that would compete for your love are non-issues. They're not relevant. When you think about the angels and the living beings surrounding the throne of God in heaven, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, do you think they're actually tempted to sin up there? You know, even if sinning was possible, they are so taken up with the most beautiful, glorious one in the universe, in existence. The fullness of glory and beauty and splendor, the fullness, the perfection of all of it. And they're gazing upon him. These living beings with eyes in front and back and under their wings and all over their bodies. And their eyes are fixed upon the beauty of the Lord. Do you think they're tempted to go and do something of sin at that point? Do you think there's any thought in their mind of that? 
They love him. And they, they adore him. <laughs> like adorable people outside. Um, yeah, when you're taken up with love for God... then competing loves are not going to be an issue. They're just not going to be. If you're, yeah, we'll leave it at that. We need to, to move on. But if we move back quickly to Revelation 2, turn back there. You might ask yourself, well, that's great, but how is it that I can grow in love for God? How can I fall in love with God? How can I love Him more? How can I cause affection to, to stir up within me to greater degrees for God? Well, first we'll look at what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 5, He says, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. You see, because there was a time when the people in this church at Ephesus, they were totally in love with Jesus. And over time, they stopped doing the things they used to do. They stopped making Jesus the priority that he used to be in their lives. So I want you all to think right now, just think for a couple of minutes. When was the time in your life when you were most in love with Jesus? That might be right now. I don't know. But when in your life were you most fully, passionately in love with Jesus? Now, what were you doing at that time? What were your priorities at that time? What did your life look like? When you woke up in the morning, what, what did you do? Before you went to bed, what did you do? And Jesus says, remember the things you used to do. Make me the priority again in your life in every way that I was when you were most fully in love with me. Do the former things. And beyond that, how, how do we fall in love with Jesus? Well, it's not about trying really hard to fall in love with someone. You can't try really hard to fall in love with someone, right? It just kind of happens in a lot of ways. But it happens in large part when that person's love for you is revealed. When you get a more clear sense, when you get more revelation of someone's love for you, if you're attracted to that person, your love for them is going to naturally grow. It says in First John, we love because he first loved us. When our revelation, when revelation within us grows for the love of God for us, when we get a clearer and clearer sense for the love of God for us, then naturally what happens 
for the believer is that love grows for God. That's, that's the natural outworking of things. We love. Because God loved us, we, we love. We start to love. He deposits love in us, and he reveals his love to us. And we just start to love him. And so Paul prays for power in Ephesians 3. Power to with all the saints to grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of God. Power to grasp this love because the outworking of that is the filling, to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, the love of God filling us up. So my prayer for us tonight as we close is that God would continue to grow us in revelation of his love for us. You know that God is fully, passionately in love with you right now. You are the object of God's affection and desires. You need to know that. And we need the Holy Spirit to continue to take us deeper and deeper into that truth. The more that becomes clearer and clearer to us, our hearts get filled with love for God. We become exhilarated in his presence. And we just naturally begin to love him more. And everything is about love. You are the object of God's desire and his affection. And God is committed to growing you in love with himself. Because you know, at that wedding feast of the Lamb, I guarantee you this, the Father will not present his son with a bride who is half-heartedly in love with him. It will not happen. What a letdown that would be, hey, for Jesus? Here's your bride. She kind of is into you, but not really. (laughs) But so much of the church is in that place, right? God is committed to his church. God is, it's going to happen. It will happen. The wedding feast of the Lamb is coming. It's coming. It's coming soon. It's coming soon. And God is purifying his bride right now. All there is to live for is love. Jesus says two things. You know, there's, there's only two things you will ever need to do in your entire life. To love God and to love people. That's it. And God is committed to growing you in that. So take hold of his willingness and press into it too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is committed to growing us in love with you. God, there is nothing greater than love. And there is nothing more wonderful, more marvelous than your love for us. And so we ask, Lord, we ask together with all the saints, Lord, that you would give us power together with all the saints to grasp this love. We need power, God. We need power to grasp your love, God. We want to know it more. Would you take us deeper and deeper, Lord, into your love for us, God? We don't want to be people with just some small understanding, God. We want to grow in our understanding of your love for us, Lord. That we'd be changed, Lord, transformed, Father. Because of your love for us and our growing understanding of it, Father. So would you give us power together, the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses 
surpasses knowledge that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness that is in you, God. That is your desire. And we partner with that desire. We say yes and amen. We want that, God. We want to be people who are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We want to be in that place, Father. Filled with love for you. Consumed, Father, with love for you. So would you do that work in us, Father? We invite you to come. Have your way in us, God. Grow us as passionate lovers. Grow us as passionate lovers of you, God. Oh, we give ourselves to you completely and fully, God. We surrender our very lives to you completely. We lay them down, God. We say, have your way. We love you. And we thank you, God. Yes, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.